This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. I don't know what vocal fry is. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Woo! I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual are my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hey, hey guys. Um, so I wanted to talk this week, we're going to change things up a little and start with the research paper of the week. And so I wanted to talk about a paper that William Gale, Melissa Kearney, and Peter Orzag did uh, for Brookings Institution. And it makes a sort of striking claim. They say that taxing rich people, even really heavily, won't substantially change income inequality. To quote a line from the paper directly, they say, increasing the top marginal rate to 45% or even 50% has a trivial impact on overall income inequality. And it's a sort of, you know, an interesting finding, and it's provocatively framed. They keep sort of saying in the course of the paper, you know, this doesn't mean it's a bad idea necessarily, but they go and they they run the numbers with the tax policy centers big simulation database. And they show that right now, the Gini coefficient, which is a sort of conventional measure of overall income inequality for after-tax income is 0.574%. And if you raise the top rate to 50%, it only goes down to 0.560%. So it's a a sort of, it's (laughs) it's a small number. And yet politically, to go from where we are now up to 50% would be this kind of huge lift. I, I think that's not even in, in Bernie Sanders' campaign. Uh, it's certainly not a Barack Obama proposal. And he's said that inequality is the defining challenge of our time. But a, a tax idea that's more ambitious than the one he put forward doesn't really move the needle on that. I think one of the things that was striking is this is a follow-up to the paper that one of these authors, Melissa Kearney, had done, also looking at education, saying like, well, if a lot more people had bachelor degrees, would that reduce inequality? And again, the finding was like, it it was like a similar Gini coefficient. I didn't bring my numbers with me, which probably makes me a bad wonk, but it was a similarly small amount. And, And like what's striking reading through this paper is that these things that seem like big policy interventions, like raising the tax rate above where any politician would put it, you know, increasing the number of unemployed men with bachelor's degrees, they're big and they like don't move the needle. And that's just such a striking thing about this research that Melissa Kearney has been doing at Hamilton. Well, I'm surprised a, by how many people seem to be surprised by this research. My understanding is it's been clear for a, a pretty long time now, actually, that you can do only a limited amount through the tax code to reduce inequality. There's a good book by Dean Baker a couple years ago. It's actually a free download if you want it. It's called, I want to say it's called Loser Liberalism. I might have it. It's like The End of Loser Liberalism. The End of Loser Liberalism. But the big point he makes is that there is a tendency within the inequality conversation to focus very tightly on post-tax inequality, on the inequality that happens after we do redistribution through the tax code. But that the big gains are to be made if you really care about inequality in in pre-tax inequality, in basically the structure of the economy itself 
and how it distributes its gains. So a post-tax intervention would be boosting the marginal tax rate on very, very high income up to 50%. But a pre-tax intervention would be something like changing the patent system or increasing the strength and bargaining power of labor unions, things that would change who gets what from economic growth. And I think that figures into this pretty substantially. I think it's been long strange and a, a strange facet of democratic policymaking and particularly democratic policy rhetoric, where on the one hand, you'll get these comments like that one from President Obama, where he says that inequality is the defining challenge of our time. On the other hand, they have policy interventions that are very underpowered, if you really believe that. A big part of that is a discomfort among this generation of democratic policymakers, perhaps a, a correct discomfort, by the way, for these kinds of pre-tax interventions that would require the government to say, we know how the economy should be structured. But if you're just going to be doing taxes, I'm not sure the tax system can bear the weight necessary to really be a solution to inequality. What's interesting is that I think the authors of this paper want to take the argument in the opposite direction from where Ezra just went with it. That, you know, you could give a sort of a more radical read to this research and say, well, it turns out that tinkering around with the tax code doesn't do much, so we need bigger steps. But I think the intended structure of this paper is that the earlier one about education came out. And it was kind of saying, hey, guys, you can talk up college all you want, but that's not going to cure inequality. But then they look at taxes, which is something that is sort of more beloved by liberals than improving education. And they're saying, well, that doesn't move the needle either. And I think the authors of this paper want to say implicitly, maybe we should care a little bit less about inequality per se, or at least this Gini coefficient measurement of it, that they did find in the earlier paper that increasing the college completion rate would help a lot of people. Um, their individual incomes would go up. One of the things they model here is, well, what if you took all that tax revenue from the 50% tax rate and just gave it to people in the bottom fifth of the income distribution? And they show that the Gini coefficient doesn't move very much if you do that, but it would give more money to the worst off people in the United States of America. And so it sounds like that would be a good thing, right? If middle class people had higher incomes because of more college completion, if poor people had higher incomes because of more redistribution, that would bring a smile to my face. Like, that sounds nice. And then there's this sort of intriguing factoid that the Gini coefficient doesn't go down that much, but that maybe just means that if we make inequality our sort of lodestar, we're going to end up rejecting a lot of policy ideas that are useful for helping people in concrete ways. Right. Like one of those, like like Obamacare is a way we've been like giving a lot of money right now. I'd say that's probably like one of the biggest policies passed in the Obama administration to tackle inequality. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, it, no and in it. an interesting way, because yeah. it provides some cash assistance to people, but it mostly offers an in-kind support, right? We can back out what's the monetary value of this insurance plan, but it's not going to show up that way in a Census Bureau statistic. It makes the country more equal in the sense that poor people will now be able to see the doctor. But let me make an argument that it's related to what you say, Matt, is sort of the implicit argument of the paper. I do think inequality is an overstated item on the Democratic agenda. In the same way, I frankly think social mobility, the kind of Republican counter to it, is also an, an overstated item, and to some degree for the same reasons. It is a difficult argument to make, I think, that the primary interest here should be relative. There is a 
pretty easy thought experiment. I've written about it. I think maybe, Matt, you've written about it too. But would you prefer a policy that cut the incomes of the rich by 25% but did nothing for the incomes of the poor and thus reduced inequality? Or would you prefer a policy that tripled the incomes of the rich, doubled the incomes of the poor, and thus made inequality worse even as it made the real living standards of the poor better? I have never met anybody who would answer the former, at least I've met many people who would answer the former, with one disclaimer. There's a real and I think very, very significant set of concerns around political inequality, that there is a tremendous amount of money flowing through the political system. Various Supreme Court decisions have made that a more dangerous thing. But I'm not sure that reducing the level, the absolute level of economic inequality in the country is actually the most straightforward or achievable way of reducing political inequality. I think there you have much more direct interventions into the campaign finance system that could go quite a bit further in terms of equalizing political speech. So I I think that you end up in a place here if you read not just this data correctly, but if you really think about your own policy preferences, that it is a bad thing to target the wrong measure. And the right measure is really living standards defined in all kinds of ways. Uh, people could define it as the amount of the country with health insurance or absolute incomes across the country or whatever it might be. But it, it's hard for me to really make the argument in a sustained way that I would make serious trade-offs in which income inequality went down without living standards going up. Well, I think there's something to be said, though, for the idea of pure inequality and kind of keeping up with the Joneses issues, right? And a view that you might actually prefer reasonably to be making $2 million a year and be the highest paid CEO in the world than to be making $4 million a year and be a kind of middle of the pack guy that people sort of want to be the best on one level. And that's one reason that this more egalitarian economy that we had in the 50s and 60s continued to run. People compete in that kind of basis. But then also when you have a more compressed income spectrum, you don't have the same kind of pressure on people to engage in sort of consumption races, keeping up with the Joneses things. You don't have the same kind of stresses on people's lives. I mean, it's hard to say that those kind of concerns are more significant than the well-being of people who are really, really, really poorly off. But I do think it makes at least some sense from the standpoint of a sort of middle-class professional living in the United States of America in 2015. We're all very affluent by sort of global and historical standards, right? We all live in houses that are pretty big that you know have heating and air conditioning we've got running water we've got toilets we can get to work that you know maybe we really do we really might be happier in some sense in a world that was just more low key less competitive less sort of impulse to say you know oh i need those granite countertops you know i need this like really cool shiny thing and i don't think it's a totally crazy idea although i do think it's an idea that practical politicians are not standing up for exactly let, let me make a point in your favor but then push on it a little bit you're completely right that there is a completely viable argument about inequality that relates to happiness it also relates in times to health there's pretty good evidence going back a couple decades that you can have real uh, effects on health through inequality, through where people see themselves on a, on a social scale. I'm just not sure that that 
actually leads to the kinds of policies or even a direct focus on, on inequality itself in an absolute way. So I think what we're talking about here, and it's worth, I think, distinguishing these, is consumption inequality. We're not just talking about status, right? There are all kinds of different inequalities you could worry about. You could say that the real inequality problem is people who see themselves as managers versus workers. I mean, you can really well, some go... of us are podcast stars. There's, <laughs> there's like so, the little people out there listening. But so you, so I think we're talking here about specifically consumption inequality. People don't seem very upset. You you always hear these things about how like Warren Buffett lives in his same tiny house in Omaha, and Mark Zuckerberg doesn't live in a very big house either. And and that's kind of meant to make people feel better that what they really dislike is kind of flashy consumption. And there's good reason for that flashy consumption and also just prices going up in general, it leads to cascade effects. It leads to people having to pay more just to keep up social appearances or to have a house in a nice neighborhood. But economist Robert Frank, I think he's at New York University now, would argue, one, that that is a real, real serious problem. He's got a series of books making this argument. But number two, that the way you want to deal with it is through a progressive consumption tax. And that isn't something you hear people talking about very often because Again, I think that they're, they're thinking about inequality in a very absolute way as opposed to thinking about what is it they actually don't like. If what you want to do is discourage a certain level of flashy spending, there are ways to do that that wouldn't probably, in the end, make people much poorer. What they would do is incentivize asset investment and other kinds of things that might, in the end, end up increasing inequality. They just don't increase consumption inequality in a big way. Yeah, I think you know, one of the things this paper doesn't quite get at and takes things in a little bit of a different direction we tend to not get as upset about a type of inequality where someone, you know, starts a business and they like make a lot of money and that's great. And, you know, they founded Apple or Google or what have you. And we want to encourage presumably people to be doing those sorts of things. You know, I think one of the things that we get upset as we look at someone like Donald Trump who inherited all of their wealth and look at these big wealth inequalities that are growing larger and larger. And that's not really something, you know, this Kearney or Zag, oh God, I'm forgetting someone's name. Gail. Gail. Paper. Gail. It's really Gail. Always, I'm really sorry. Oh, sorry. That, it's that's Bill not... Gale who has access to the Tax Policy Center micro simulation <sighs> I'm that never makes gonna it act... all possible. I'm never going to get to use the simulation, am I? No. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Do we want to be redistributing those earnings of these people who are starting these businesses to other folks? Like, It seems like a lot of what the anger politically is at you know, Democrats particularly, is that, you know, this inequality in wealth that can multiply in itself and really grow and grow and get more disparate and disparate as you go over generations of inheritance. I I did think it was interesting, a slight hide-the-ball move almost in this paper, was that they look exclusively at the ordinary income tax rate, which is, of course, a big deal and something politicians talk about a lot. But particularly in the context of high-end inequality, it does seem to me that estate taxes and capital gains taxes are an important kind of consideration. And the proposal they're making would actually not raise taxes at all on someone who inherits a giant boat full of Facebook stock and sort of collects dividends over the course of their lifetime and then passes that huge boat of money on to their kids. Or the Walton family at this point is probably the best example of that. The guy who actually founded and built Walmart is dead. And the reason that Bill Gates is the richest person in America is that Sam Walton had four kids. So that Walton fortune is divided four ways. But if you add them up, right, the sort of 
I founded Walmart fortune is bigger than the I founded Microsoft fortune. And the people who currently hold it, who are all in the top 20 in the wealth list in the United States, they didn't do anything. You know, they didn't create anything. It was just sort of, you know, handed to them. They've had to manage their investments. And they got their money in an era of higher estate taxes than the one that we have right now. And something that Thomas Piketty kind of put on the agenda, but then got a little lost as the political system processed the question of inequality was this idea of dynastic wealth and, you know, where is the money of the future? Is it going to come from people who work and do things or is it going to come from people who inherit? I I think in some ways it is useful to pull out of the dynastic or out of the sort of good rich person, bad rich person construct altogether. So Credit Suisse just put out their global wealth data book. And what they find is that the 1% of the the world's wealthiest owns half of all wealth in the world. So 1% owns half of all wealth in the world. And that's a tremendous number. You can nitpick that number, and I have. Um, One thing I don't like about it is that it counts negative wealth. So you have a lot of people under this definition in America who are counted as much poorer than, you know, because they have debt, because, you know, they're uh, a doctor, they're a resident in internal medicine, and they have debt from medical school, and they're being counted as poorer than an Indian farmer who has no debt, which I think is just ludicrous. But nevertheless, like even if you cut out negative wealth, you still have this sort of 1% to 40% number or something. And that, I think, is a much more salient kind of inequality, particularly in the long term, because income inequality is very volatile year to year. People have a really good year, and then they have a really bad year. They lose their money altogether. Wealth is much more sustained, and and wealth is, I think, really what gives you the capacity to make the kind of investments that perpetuate themselves. Wealth is sort of, I think, where somebody who's just had a good year probably isn't going to pump a bunch of that money into influencing the political system. Somebody who has a tremendous amount of wealth and so has stability in their resources definitely has more capacity to make the kind of decisions where they want to invest $5 million or $10 million, or as in the case of Carl Icahn, just this week, $150 million into a super PAC meant to get a tax change that would help them get richer. And yet we're much more comfortable talking about income taxes in this country than wealth taxes, despite the fact that in a lot of ways, when we talk about what we worry about with income inequality, I think that case tends to apply better to wealth inequality. Yeah, I think it kind of on the flip side of that, it gets at this idea that it's really expensive to be poor, that like so many things are so much harder when you have less money. And this does get at some of the, you know, social mobility issues, but just even getting a loan, even, um, Buying food you can't buy in bulk. You're probably not going to have enough savings. You know, there are so many things that are much less accessible. When you're on the flip side of billionaires starting their own super PACs, you have lower-income people who, you know, even just trying to do savings, do other things, it's, you know, a very expensive thing to do when you earn less money and kind of is at the other side of that on lacking wealth end of the distribution. Right. I mean, particularly in terms of just volatility, right? If you have a decent amount of money in the bank and then something bad happens, you have to spend that money down and you're probably sad because you don't have as much money before. But if you don't have any savings and something bad happens, you have to go into debt. 
and you're often the kind of person who can't get debt on any kind of favorable terms. Mm -hmm. And so now you're in a hole, not just in terms of the money that you owe, but the interest that you are owing on it. Uh, there was this report from American Enterprise Institute and the, uh, the New York Fed this week, and it's sort of making the case for payday lending. And it's not a terrible paper by any means. And it, it sort of correctly points out that this is a service that a lot of low-income people really need, these crappy loan products, because without a savings buffer, it's hard to get by in life. But so one place you can go with that is to say, well, we should cheer payday lenders who are charging people incredibly high interest rates uh, for short-term loans. Uh, another way you could go for it is to say, you know, this is how bad it is to have drastic disparities in people's ability to have a wealth buffer, that you can credibly make the case that payday lending is a solution to a problem, right? That, you know, we would want to live in a society, I would think, in which people are able to have a, a little bit of ability to sort of get over a bump in their life and illness. And that's, you know, a way that health insurance program and, and other kinds of things can have a big economic impact by, by helping people out with it. But it is, it's true that there's a, a huge difference, not just between like mega wealth and regular wealth, but then also between regular wealth and like the no wealth circumstances that a lot of people find themselves in. And that's something I think is really underplayed in the inequality conversation in general, which is that different levels of income and different levels of wealth have very different dynamics associated with them. So if you go back into the income inequality data, you see that median incomes begin stagnating around the mid-70s. But the incomes of the top 1% really take off in the mid-80s. One really interesting question I've asked a lot of economists to answer, and I've gotten, honestly, a lot of different answers, is whether those two dynamics are related, they're the same trend, or they're completely different, or some mixture of the two. There's one argument that you're effectively having a kind of cream-skimming effect happening at upper income levels, so that there's one story about inequality that goes something like, for various reasons related to globalization, related to superstar effects, related to the decline of American unions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you have had an increase in economic power among people at the top. And so over an extended period of time, they began squeezing the economy to capture more and more and more of the gains. You had, correspondingly, a decrease in economic power among median workers and much more so among pretty poor workers. And so when you put that together, you're really just seeing a redistribution upwards. You're not seeing a different kind of wealth creation happening at the top. You're seeing wealth creation that was already happening and is being better captured by people at the top. So another argument that says these are simply different dynamics altogether, that you have something happening to median wages, again, beginning around the 70s, something different happening to the top 1% beginning around the 80s, and that you can fix one without fixing the other. And in fact, you should really be focused on the median wage stagnation question and much more potentially to the point, even the sort of bottom 20th percentile wage question. And this kind of endless focus on the dynamics of the top 1% is completely misleading. The truth is, I don't know how to answer that disagreement, but I do think it's really salient. I think that you can imagine a world where we are looking at the exact same Gini coefficient today, but median wages had continued at their sort of 1945 to 1975 pace, and the average American is a whole lot richer. And we're a lot less worried about inequality, despite inequality being no less bad. That In that argument, inequality is really a 
way that we have found to talk about the economy being bad that creates a villain people are comfortable with, as opposed to a kind of impersonal set of economic dynamics that on the one hand are harder to sell politically and on the other hand require much more worrying and ambitious interventions. And I guess to put that more simply, if you think the problem is rich people have too much money, you can tax them. If you think the problem is globalization, well, that's a lot harder of a problem to solve. This is where, personally, I always feel a sort of conflict between my gut and some of the data. And the data, like in this paper, always does seem to show that there's something bigger and deeper going on than simply, oh, rich people have some more money and you can you can claw it back. On the other hand, it seems really, really suspicious to me that you have this coincidence in timing where median wages start stagnating, but inequality starts growing, and also that it corresponds with a time when conservative political movements who had an explicit agenda of saying, well, we need to worry less about inequality, gained a lot of power, and they particularly gained power in English-speaking countries, which have particularly seen this notable rise in inequality. It seems almost ludicrous to me to argue that it's a grand cosmic coincidence. It's like there's just way too much circumstantial evidence that median wages got taken by rich people. But when you look for the sort of hard, concrete data, the fingerprints on the guns, things like that, it winds up being really, really hard to find. And so one question is, is like, well, does that mean we have to keep doing the investigation and like find out what's going on because it's pretty clear what happened? Or does it mean you know we need to rethink it and somehow history can be stranger or more ironic than I might guess? I mean, I kind of tend towards your interpretation of like, look at all these things and chalk. I mean, this is a hard thing to study, right? Like in terms of finding the right data set to tell this story. Yeah, I mean, how does the economy work how do you is set, like a yeah. big question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but answered in next week's edition of The Weeds. Oh, Ezra. No, no don't, we're never don't give it away. We're never going to answer it. You know, one other thing that jumped out at me, I think because I'm working on, um, stay tuned for a very exciting Vox.com interactive about tax brackets, is that, you know, so this proposal to go up to 45 or 50 percent, it seems like crazy, like out of the realm of politics. You look back a few decades ago and this would seem like, like actually like a lowering of the marginal rate. Yeah, I mean, where this is just like such a different universe we're living in right now than 50 years ago when this proposal would have seen like, why are we lowering it to that level? Yeah, when when JFK was president, he had this bold tax cutting (laughs) idea and he was going to bring the top rate down from 91% to 70%. And it was a little bit contentious. And some people thought that was going to make the deficit too big. And he had this Keynesian argument about it. And it seems crazy now. I mean, not just the idea of a 70% rate is insanely high, but the idea that that was a tax cut like boggles the mind. Everything you say is completely true there. But one thing it is worth saying is we collect a significantly larger share of the economy in taxes now than we did then. Uh, I do but think that was JFK's point. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, but but really, I mean, part yeah. of the the way this gets interesting, right, is that nobody was paying a 91% right. that's, tax that's rate. That's the point I'm making. Because because that would be silly, right? <laughs> so, but would, to back what you said at the beginning of this discussion about pre-tax versus post-tax interventions, 
The interesting thing is that a tax rate that high actually changes the pre-tax economy, right? If you're in a 91% tax bracket, you are just not going to spend a lot of time scheming with the board of directors to get yourself a raise because it wouldn't be a raise for you. It would be a raise for the IRS, right? So bringing the tax rates down to a more plausible level really did generate more tax revenue. I mean, I think now people make that claim in a really dodgy way, but it was pretty clearly true about the early 1960s. But that, you know, is a it's a mixed blessing, right? I mean, the government gets more money and so you can do, you know, different stuff. They had a moon program and a war in Vietnam and, you know, lots of other amazing adventures, but <laughs> Just all these fun things to send tax um, revenue this, on. This, the Lots 60s, of amazing adventures. Matt Iglesias' history of the 60s. Yeah, the 60s were a crazy time. <laughs> but if you're concerned about sort of how do companies work, right, having relatively low tax rates means that the executives have a large interest in the question of how much do the executives get paid. Whereas if your salary is in effect capped, right? So they have like a salary cap in the NBA. Um, You know, players can only be paid so much. And so the players who are really good, LeBron James, people like that, they spend a lot of time scheming about, well, how can I win a championship? How can I live in a city that I think is cool? And so a CEO with a maxed out salary, you know, he's got bigger things to worry about than his own paycheck. And that can be glory. It can be the size of the bathroom on the executive floor. But it can also be things like spending the money on hiring more middle class workers to sort of build the company up rather than taking as much out of it for yourself as you possibly can. Hey, Matt, can I elicit a riff from you? Yes. (laughs) Awesome. So I think that one issue within the political debate about inequality is that there is a a problem that happens a lot in politics where because the tax code is such a straightforward, not to say simple, but a straightforward tool for politicians to use, they tend to treat every problem like a tax problem. A lot of the more promising approaches to inequality would not be tax-based. And one that you've made the argument for has to do with local zoning regulations. And I think you should make that argument here today on the weekend. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. So... Something that I think Democrats like the tax issue, both because it's kind of easy to just say, well, we should pay more, but also because it generates revenue, which the De- the Democratic Party really likes tax revenue because you can do stuff with it um, and, you know, give it to your, your constituents and your friends and things like that. But other kinds of interventions, right, don't have that same property. But one thing that there's been really good research from Enrico Moretti on is the extent to which the differential housing costs in different markets drive inequality. So if you go to San Francisco or you go to Boston, Everybody gets a higher salary in those markets, right? The high-tech workers get paid more, but so do the guys who fold burritos at Chipotle. But the housing costs are also higher. And the differential between the housing costs and the wages means that it's worth it for highly skilled workers to go live in high-wage, high-cost areas. But it's not really worth it for working-class people to do it because their extra earnings would be clawed back by the housing. 
So if you let people build more houses so it was cheaper to go to the Bay Area, to go to Washington, D.C., to go to New York, to go to Boston, you could actually do a fair amount to sort of raise wages at the bottom by letting people move to where opportunity is. You wouldn't necessarily make wealthy people worse off because they would still have their good jobs, but their jobs wouldn't get any better. And that's a kind of very happy inequality outcome where the poor get richer and the rich do not get poorer. And in theory, everyone could sort of applaud that. But, you know, local housing is very sticky and it doesn't have the same kind of easy, like, let's blame the Koch brothers kind of stance to it that some of these taxi things do. Right. I think that's a big issue here, that when you talk about non-tax approaches to moderating inequality, you end up with villains, and I use the word sort of in air quotes, you end up with people who who will lose in those policies, who are often more sympathetic than the group you were initially dealing with. So there are zoning-related ideas around inequality, but the people they hurt are not the people we think of as the 1%. They're people who enjoy their views in cities and other things. They enjoy their skyline, whatever. And some of those people are very, very rich, and definitely they tend to be more affluent than average. But it's a different coalition, and it's often one that's pretty hard hard to overwhelm. Similarly, when you're dealing with patents and copyright claims and things of that nature, you're dealing with companies, again, many of them often very rich. But you will have claimants there who are small businesses and, and other things. When you're dealing with ideas around political inequality, or, or even actually to go back to a different Kearney paper, when you're dealing with education, you will have ideas that some people think will improve education, but the fight there isn't with rich people, it's with teachers' unions. And so the Democratic Party, I think in particular, is very comfortable with a tax fight that is about middle class or lower class folks against the rich who enjoy a low tax bill, but a lot less comfortable with some of the coalitional fights that are implied by these other kinds of approaches, which is one reason that despite, I think, the tremendous quantity of democratic rhetoric you hear about inequality, is why the actual approach to policy thinking on it is fairly narrow. Yeah, I mean, this framework, it almost helps explain why Obamacare was able to pass, because you could point your finger at insurance companies, at pharma companies, and say, look at these big, nameless companies, particularly pharma, has you know some of the biggest revenue margins of any businesses in the U.S. and say, you know, these are a villain and there are people who are uninsured and we're going to help them. It wasn't like doctors. Um, it wasn't hospitals. It wasn't familiar faces who we think of as like not bad actors that you were able to point it, regardless of whether or not this is true, and that can be another episode of The Weeds, you're able to point at insurers as this bad guy who has all this money and pass this program that starts redistributing more money to more low-income people. You know, another possible way to to help with inequality would be to make it easier for everyone to build a website. (laughs) Ooh. Intriguing policy. Maybe Matt can tell us more. You know, when I started blogging back in 2002, I was actually hand coding a website, doing all the squinty points and, you know, HTML. And it was a nightmare. I mean, not only did it look like garbage, but it was really, really difficult to just do anything at all. And then some crude tools came along and it was still looked like garbage and it was still really hard. And these days, the kids have it 
way too easy because you can go to Squarespace, you can get a site that has a nice, snazzy, personal, professional design. You can modify it in different ways. Any moron could do it. I use Squarespace. Exactly. My website, sarahcliff.com, is on Squarespace. Not to say Wait, you that have Sarah a, a website, sarahcliff.com. Is a moron. I do, which is a much better website than my um, infamous high school live journal, which Dylan Matthews has been searching the internet for, but looks like garbage. And so it's good. It's good for business owners out there, you know, people who want a website. I mean, you get a professional looking design regardless of your skill level. No coding is required. There's intuitive, easy to use tools. State of the art technology powers the site to get yourself security, stability. Uh, millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world use it. Starts at $8 a month. You get a free domain if you do a full year subscription. And you can start your free trial today. No credit card is required at squarespace.com. If you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code WEEDS, W-E-E-D-S, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. So Joe Biden is not running for president. He gave a slightly peculiar speech in the Rose Garden this week, which we can talk about if people want. But I actually want to talk about something he was saying in the days before he decided not to run for president, which is he had picked up on something Hillary Clinton said during the first Democratic debate. She was asked which enemy she's really proud of having made. She kind of named off some big lobbies like the NRA, the insurance industry. She named the Iranians. And then in a move that I think was really unwise, she said also the Republicans. So she said the Republicans were an enemy she was very proud to have made. And Biden, who in the days before he decided not to run, really clearly seemed to be road testing a campaign message, went to a couple of different speeches and said, you know, I don't think of Republicans as the enemy. They're my friends. Uh, they're, they're people I work with. And it's a kind of neat political hit. But behind that is, I think, an actually interesting question about congressional dysfunction and how things do or don't get done, which is one of the recurrent criticisms of Obama. One of the criticisms that Obama used to beat Clinton is the idea that the problem in American politics, a reason nobody can agree on anything, is simply a lack of good interpersonal relationships. And that the argument that Biden was clearly previewing was that Biden, who has really good relationships with congressional Republicans, who has very deep and long-term congressional relationships, could get a lot more done just by virtue of kind of being a more likable and liked politician. And when you talk to members of Congress about this, you really hear them back this up. When you talk to them about Obama, Democrats and Republicans will really waste your time telling you uh, at, at great length how dissed they feel by the president, how they just, he doesn't invite them to enough parties. They don't get to see the Super Bowl with him. He's not like Clinton, Bill Clinton, who used to call them late at night and like listen to them talk for hours. It is very hard to find evidence of any of this in a real way. It is very hard to look at, say, Bill Clinton's record and see a tremendous amount of legislating get done as compared to Obama's record, who, while well, everybody agrees Obama is worse at congressional relations, he has gotten a whole lot more done. But I do think it's an, it's an interesting question. Hillary Clinton, sort of on the flip side, does not pretend to have great relationships with Republicans, does not pretend to be a, phen a phenomenal congressional operator, has actually made sort of a point of the idea that she understands this era's age of polarized, almost weaponized partisan politics. And because she comes in with no illusions, unlike her argument against Obama in 08, who she said, you know, was coming under illusions, and to some degree I think probably did, that she, by simply understanding the trench warfare nature of this from the get-go, will be able to craft more realistic strategies 
for trying to find what successes are on offer. So I'm curious, Matt or Sarah, what you what you think of sort of the Biden theory of congressional gridlock and political polarization? Well, I think Sarah can probably talk about this better than I can, but I think you really saw during the Obamacare debate the limits of working together in good faith with people who you have a good relationship with in the Senate process, which, you know, Max Baucus was much more like at the Joe Biden end of that spectrum and actually is more Just real s- quick, the former Senate finance chairman. Yeah. yeah. And, and was more substantively moderate uh, ideologically than Joe Biden ever was and had historically had a great relationship with his counterpart on the Senate Finance Committee. And, you know, he did a lot of work in the course of that drafting process to try to get Republican support. And at the end of that, you know, you didn't have Republicans saying, like, fuck Max Baucus, he's an asshole. (laughs) They just didn't want to vote for a big tax increase to finance a giant expansion of health insurance. Yeah. No, I generally agree with that. And when I look at kind of the Obama record of legislating, and particularly the big piece of legislation that I write about a lot, Obamacare, I mean, the lesson there seems to be that supermajorities matter a lot. And and like (laughs) one of the things, you know, I think about with the Clinton strategy, you know, I understand like maybe she has a more realistic view of D.C., but like what is the end game there? You know, like at least like the Biden theory of Republicans are friends. It like tells like some kind of plausible story or maybe not plausible story, but it tells like, you know, a possible story one could believe about, you know, I'm going to listen to people and I'll make some phone calls and something, something underwear gnomes. We pass laws. The Clinton one, though, I don't really understand like what the end game is. Like we propose some things, you know, Matt and I were actually talking about this. Maybe like the brilliant political thing is like we get to propose things we don't actually want to pass And that's how we work this out. But I don't understand kind of where this lands in terms of actually passing policies. I don't think there is a theory. Well, let me let me back this up, actually. I think there are three ways to look at this. One is this sort of nihilism interpretation, which I actually trend towards quite a bit, which is to say that neither Joe Biden nor Hillary Clinton nor Bernie Sanders nor anyone uh, nor any Democrat is going to get a lot done with Republican Congress. And I think that's probably the likeliest outcome. I think you're seeing it right now with Barack Obama. I think another argument, the argument sort of for Bidenism, is that we all get very turned by the big headline issues of American politics. Does Obamacare pass or not? Does a cap-and-trade bill for carbon pass or not? But a lot in American politics happens on the margins. There are small things that we don't think of as a huge deal because they're not of tremendous reader interest, but they do end up affecting tens of thousands or even millions of people, or they're not as polarized. And that on that margin, those relationships really do matter. And so you could actually see something getting done. Then there is, I think, a, a whole other category here, which for all we know is is what Hillary Clinton is thinking about. It's definitely something Bill Clinton did. And it's, I think, what people really mean when they talk about triangulation, which is the idea that in order to get agreement, you need to work on issues that you have a substantive disagreement with your coalition on. So Clinton passed welfare reform, and he probably couldn't have gotten much more many other things done through Republican Congress. He tried health care and it was a huge failure, but he did pass NAFTA. He did pass welfare reform. And he was able to do that by choosing to pursue issues that Republicans kind of agreed with him on. Well, this is Obama more... hasn't really done that. He's 
Uh-huh. Go for Th- it. Matt. This is where Biden's speech, I think, got so odd. You know, he sort of gave us this a is pre- this is a Rose Garden speech. Yeah, in the Rose yeah. Garden, he gave us what his stump speech would have said. To the extent that you can reconstruct any logic to it, it had three pillars. One was he said the Obama administration's record deserves a strong defense, which I think is an interesting idea. One was this idea about the Republicans aren't my enemy, which is an interesting idea. But then the other was like, what is Joe Biden for? And it was very boilerplate, labor liberal, we got to fight for the middle class type stuff. It was exactly the kind of thing that is DOA with the Republican Congress, totally regardless of your personal relationships with them. Where you could have gone was to say something like, you know, I know people think we're not getting anything done, but we just have this Trans-Pacific Partnership. We are going to do a reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. We did a massive Medicare bill that fixed this, like, looming doc fix problem. Right. And so you could Although make... Sarah thinks it didn't fix it. Well, for a future episode <laughs> of The Weeds. It, it changed things, though. They it, passed a law. If you, it, it was a big deal, yeah. It was a big deal. It was you, a big fucking deal. If you Biden wanted to, you could make the case that what Democrats should do is admit that the country is not ready for a new giant wave of activist progressive legislation, but that you want someone in the White House who is going to fight to maintain Obamacare, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all that good stuff, but who is then going to work with Republicans, not by like being awesome, but by actually working with them on things where there might plausibly be agreement. There's this like dangling patent reform legislation. There's potentially going to be a big trade agreement with Europe. There's the possibility of doing something, you know, to get transportation funding flowing again. And so it's not a great primary campaign message, but there is a certain logical sense in saying, you know, guys, we're we're sort of tricking ourselves if we think we can't get, quote unquote, anything done. What we can't get done is a liberal wish list because we don't have a liberal Congress. So we ought to run on an agenda of scaling down the temperature so we don't have these constant shutdowns and government crises. We ought to defend the gains that we've made and we should try to make progress on some smaller, more plausible issues. Uh, that's not at all what he said. This says. is a really solid campaign you're running, man. It's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> the but people, he, this will be the political revolution America has been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boring, small bore, <laughs> consensus, centrist issues for an era of divided government. There's your slogan. Um, but the reality <laughs> is, is that when Bill Clinton... That's Bill Clinton... 96. Wait, when, <laughs> when, when Bill Clinton governed that way, people liked it, to be honest. And with the current Democrats, unlike Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was coming off a big period of failure to enact giant progressive change. Obama actually has enacted some giant progressive change. And so it strikes me that it would not be totally crazy to say, you know what, we're going to consolidate and defend. We're not going to ask people to swallow some enormous new program and risk that it's just completely rejected and everything we did gets wrong. Right. And you like see a space there already with like the Cadillac tax and Obamacare, which both Bernie and Hillary have said that they want to get rid of. The Cadillac tax has no like defender in the race. It's kind of out there with some economists who like it, but no one who's actually taking up the mantle on And Obama's that. education record is and, the yeah. same way that, you know, Republicans have always complained about Arne Duncan's seizure of power. The unions don't like it. Hillary is, is very close with the teachers. Bernie, I, I don't know exactly what he wants to do with schools, but it's, it's certainly not what Obama wants to do. But, you know, Biden 
it's not just in the speech, but in all the sort of leaking, the like, what's the campaign going to look like? Biden was looking at running on the exact same issues that Hillary Clinton was running on. And that doesn't really make sense because she's already there. You might actually see, of the two of them, Clinton actually strikes me as likelier to do this. It is something, as you say, that has roots in her her husband's presidency. It also is very related to what she did when she actually came to the Senate. Into It was 2000, I think. Part of the Hillary Clinton pitch in 2008 was that she had become unexpectedly popular and effective as a senator by keeping her head down for a couple of years, by working on pretty small and and often fairly regional issues or local issues. But she developed really good relationships with Republicans, including some who had been leaders in her husband's impeachment. And it would not be shocking to me. I mean, she's a very savvy player to see her win the presidency, but look at a Republican House and probably a Republican Senate and decide on a sort of confidence building agenda for a little while. I agree it's not that she's going to run in the primary, but consolidate, defend and sort of find agreement where you can. There is precedent for that with her. But I think to, to go back to the the underlying idea here, I think what we're all saying in different ways is that relationships don't overwhelm actual substantive policy disagreements in politics. And I think that when you say it like that, it makes a ton of sense. It's a really weird idea that John Boehner or Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan is going to give up on substantive commitments they've been fighting for in public life for decades just because Barack Obama invited them on Air Force One or Joe Biden is a super fun guy. Eric Cantor, who called Joe Biden just like a wonderful man. He, he went in time and really said he is just on a, on a human and relationship level awesome. The Cantor-Biden talks really didn't go anywhere. They, they had budget talks that ended up essentially falling apart. There, it's not just about the individuals involved. It's about this sort of whole constellation of interest groups and voters and everyone else. And if the, even if the individuals want to betray their, their underlying commitments, they are, to, in order to uphold their relationship, they are, are held in check by a sort of much larger ecosystem that they represent that, that gives them ultimately power. So, I mean, I'm very skeptical. I think relationships help on the margin, but I'm very skeptical that they can overcome what are actual divides over questions like, is global warming real or should we increase taxes on people? I don't think sort of being buddies with people gets you that far. On the other hand, I will say that I think it is at least an answer to the question in a way that Clinton and Sanders and others on the Democratic side who are looking at a Republican House for the foreseeable future, I just don't think they have an answer to this question right now. I think that it it mixes between kind of fantasies about political revolutions and what you could pass and then sometimes goes into just ideas for, you know, the smaller things you could do going around Congress, which in the long run is just, I think, day by day pretty poisonous to the political system. But I think the kind of backslapping Joe Biden, you know, theory of politics speaks to fundamentally how uh, old that guy is and how long his career in the Senate has been. I mean, he's been he came into the Senate before the median American alive today was born. And it was a different time. And I don't think I totally understood the way in which it was different until I actually read a a dissertation that a guy named Sam Rosenfeld, who Ezra and I worked with once upon a time, wrote. And, And something he explains is that in the 60s and 70s, when ideological and single-issue groups were coming onto the horizon, those were considered to be anti-partisan forces because the political parties were these kind of oddball patronage 
personal networks that had their own electoral priorities. And then these issue groups would come up and they would say, hey, you know what, guys? The environment is really important, not partisanship. And in a dynamic like that, having personal relationships across the party divide let you make progress on ideological priorities, right? And that's very authentic to the period in time when Joe Biden started his career in the Senate, that, you know, party ties would sort of prevent you from finding the people who agreed with you on the issues and being like a good guy who wasn't an asshole and was willing to work with people and have lunch with them and talk about what they thought was actually how you could discover who your fellow travelers were and what you wanted to do with them. And that's just not a good characterization of the current constellation of American politics. All those guys up there with R's behind their name know what the Republican Party stands for, and they opted into that, and they want to stand up for the low taxes, less regulation kind of thing. And it gets just really hard to do anything on a even a medium-sized topic without touching the sort of core question of, should the government be regulating more or less? Should it be taxing more or less? And you know, I think in some ways that it's the most pernicious fantasy of all. I mean, Bernie Sanders' political revolution thing, I don't think stands up to a ton of scrutiny. <laughs> but the scenario in which Bernie Sanders wins the Democratic nomination and then wins the general election is itself kind of outlandish. So, you know, who's to say, right? right. I mean, maybe the only way in which that would happen is if there really was a political revolution. And, like, I don't know, right? It's just yeah, weird. Yeah, it, it is in that way internally coherent. Although to make a very abbreviated self-critique today, I scheduled my train back from New York too early. And so I must unfortunately cut this discussion short, which I feel badly about. You know who loves trains? Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you back in D.C., Ezra. Absolutely. There's been another episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Thanks to our producer, A.C. Valdez, and to our sponsor, Squarespace.